that's praising him to God's word. Father God, we pray that you would speak to us this morning. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. Father, we thank you for the gift of Mark's gospel. And Father, we pray that as we look into it, Father, teach us more about your son, the Lord Jesus. And teach us more about ourselves and what it means to follow him. Father, change us, we pray this morning, by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. There was an article written a number of years ago by a mission organisation that many of you will have heard of. And it described the UK church like Old Testament Israel in the time of the prophets. Basically, what I mean by that is pretty much dead. Uh, that's really what was going on. And at the same time, they described their own organisation as a prophetic voice at work in the UK while the churches were slumbering and staggering. In their view, the churches were static, hard, purposeless bodies. Whereas organisations outside the local church were sort of dynamic and where all the action was at. I wonder if you agree with their assessment of the state of the UK church. It's quite a common view when you scratch the surface. Uh, lots of people have started to think about it. They even call it terms, really, to describe it. So the technical term for a body that sort of exists because it exists is a modality, sort of a mode of being. It's just sort of there. An example would be a family or the state. It's just there because it's there. The technical term for a dynamic, adaptable body uh, that exists for a purpose is a modality. Uh, sorry, it's a sodality, though, right? Sodality. So an example of this would be a strike force or a relief appeal. Something that goes and actually does something and then sort of comes out again. It exists for a clear purpose. And if you Google those terms, if you go home afterwards, Google modality, sodality, it will tell you there that the local church, even the global church, is a modality, and that the parachurch, especially mission organisations, are a sodality. But I want to argue this morning that from our passage, as Jesus begins the church, so to speak, as he pulls the disciples around him, we're going to see that there's no such distinction. Actually, right from day one, the church is a bit of both. A mode like a family or a nation, but with a clear purpose like a strike force or a relief appeal. That's where Jesus is going as he describes the church in these verses. So let's look at this uh, together. Let me read to you again verses 7 to 12, and the first point we'll see is reaching the nations. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. He told his disciples to have a boat ready for him, because of the crowd, lest they crush him, for he had healed so many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. The passage before this, Jesus has had a battle with the Pharisees over the Sabbath. And now he withdraws to somewhere else. That's what the, the verse starts with, doesn't it? But it's not a withdrawal like a retreat. This is a withdrawal Jesus taking himself away from them. It's bad news for them because Jesus is going away. Jesus in the last passage was angry with their hardness of heart. And now Jesus is coming away from them and moving to other people. They were refusing to endorse healing someone because in their minds it was the wrong day to do it. They reject Jesus, so Jesus rejects them. 
And it's no coincidence here then that Mark decides to list off the makeup of Jesus' followers. He could have done this at any point, couldn't he? But now he wants you to see just how broad Jesus' following is. There are people from Galilee. Let me show you a map. From Galilee in the north. From Judea, from Jerusalem. Those ones are probably more familiar to us. Idumea was south of Judea. It was the historic kingdom of Edom, descended from Esau. Beyond the Jordans were places like Perea and Decapolis, mostly inhabited by non-Jews. And then Tyre and Sidon were cities in the north, historic enemies of Israel that often attacked them at various points. In other words, by his description here, he wants you to see that people are coming to Jesus from everywhere, both from inside and outside the boundaries of historic ancient Israel. The religious elites of Israel are rejecting him, but Jesus' followers are coming in from everywhere. <coughs> now Jesus and his disciples are beginning here, even at this point, even in chapter 3 of Mark's Gospel, they're already starting to reach the nations. We're already beginning to see what their mission will be, aren't we? It's the beginning of a journey that will take some of them to the edges of the then known world. A journey that will end as millions upon millions from every tribe, tongue and nation will gather around Jesus at the throne on the last day. This crowd is an amazing thing as we see these people starting to be gathered in. The crowd on that day will be amazing. The crowd here, a bit more ambiguous though, when we actually get to the, the actual people that are there. Because what's happening all the way through Mark's Gospel is you're never quite sure where the crowd is. Sometimes they're with Jesus... Sometimes they're against Jesus. Sometimes they're a good thing. Sometimes they're a bad thing. Here there's a crowd around Jesus. Great. But if you look, they're actually in danger of crushing him. There's actually a danger to this number of people. If you want a sort of image of it, imagine it a bit like Beatlemania in the 1960s. I say imagine I wasn't there. But uh, <laughs> videos and stuff. But it, it must have almost been scary to be part of that when you've got these people pushing forward all the time. They're in danger of crushing him. And they want healing. He's wanting to preach, as we've seen. And actually, here they are for healing, but they're in danger, actually, of, of crushing him. So much that he tells the disciples to get a boat ready, either to make a quick getaway, or to sort of move a little bit distance out into the water so they can't actually get to him. The misdirection of his ministry from preaching to simply healing here actually misses his life. The crowd could see him dead, so to speak. And it's a foreshadowing of what is to come in Mark's Gospel, as in the end the crowd will see him dead, as they cry out, crucify, crucify, to Pontius Pilate. So a big crowd is not always a good thing. So it's a bit ambiguous as we see it. But Mark drops in a rather significant aside in here, so he's talking about the crowd that are coming from all these different places. He sort of just drops in, oh, and by the way, when Jesus was casting out demons, they knew who he was. We've already seen that, that's not a new thing. They knew in chapter 1, but look at who they say he is. Verse 11, you are the Son of God. You are the Son of God. Mark has declared in the Son of God, uh, in chapter 1, verse 1. God the Father has declared in the Son at his baptism, in chapter 1. And now evil spiritual forces are declaring Jesus to be the Son of God. Now as we noted in previous talks, this is not mental illness. That doesn't do that to you. It doesn't give you supernatural knowledge if what we're talking about here is mental illness. This is something else. Now, 
They're actually trying to hinder Jesus' mission by speaking the truth. That's what they're doing, these evil forces. They've ramped it up from the Holy One of God in chapter 1 to the Son of God. They know Jesus' identity. But actually they're trying to use it against him. And unlike his father's testimony, Jesus does not accept theirs. He will not allow them to identify him as such. He won't collaborate with demons. What they're trying to do, though, is what we probably call today truth bombs. They're trying to use the truth as a weapon. Their intention is not to help Jesus' ministry. That's not what they're there to do. They're actually there to cause trouble for him and his followers. His followers, his disciples, we know this, but I've really messed up ideas about what it meant to be the Son of God. He's got lots more teaching to do. No wonder he wanted to prioritise that. There's actually there a lot to learn, didn't they? The evil spirits are speaking truly, but they're trying to hinder his mission to reach the nations. They're trying to derail his mission before it even gets going. But Jesus has big plans for this ragtail group, this ragtag group that are following him at this point. Actually, this group are going to become something really special. And so our second point, jumping down to verse 20, forming a family. Forming a family. Have a look at verses 20 and 21. And he went home, and the crowd gathered so that he could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. We see here that biological family is no longer where it's at for God's people. Biological family is no longer where it's at for God's people. The crowd, again, play an ambiguous role. So taken with serving the crowd, Jesus and his disciples don't have time to eat. And yet they're on kingdom work, aren't they? They're doing something worthwhile. Opposition here comes from a surprising quarter. Jesus' family. His brothers, either his half-brothers or step-brothers, and probably Mary seem to think that Jesus has gone out of his mind. They clearly think, this has gone too far, Jesus. You're doing this too much. It's too much. And they plan an intervention. They're going to seize him. Now that word there is fascinating. It's the same word for what will happen to Jesus later on in the Gospel, when he's arrested by Roman soldiers. It's the same word. But who are the first people who seek to arrest Jesus, if you like, seize him? It's his family. He came to his own, and his own received him not. But whereas the Romans and the Jews thought that he was bad, his family just think he's mad, don't they? They think he's out of his mind. Now Mary and his, uh, his brothers will come round to understand who Jesus is. James is almost certainly among them, and James is the one who wrote the book of James, and he'll be an early church leader in Jerusalem. But at this point, as John tells us quite plainly in John's Gospel, even his brothers didn't yet believe in him. Actually, they were sceptical. They didn't know what to think. And it's showing us here in part that the old biological ways of doing things are on the way out. No longer will being part of God's people mainly depend on biology. Instead, it will depend on theology. So look down to verses 31 to 35. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him, and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at uh, those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. 
For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. God's family here now are those who have faith in Jesus. God's family are now those who have faith in Jesus. Jesus' mother and brothers turn up, whether it's to seize him or just to have a chat, we don't know. They call and send, just like Jesus will do on the mountain in a few minutes' time. We'll look at that. The difference here, though, is it's reversed. They're trying to call him. They're trying to get him to come, when it's Jesus who does the calling. And in response, Jesus makes a really quite shocking statement, doesn't he? He effectively says, that, that's not my real mother. They're not my real brothers. My real family is here. Those around me, those following me. They are my brothers. They are my kin. They are my family. What he's saying is here that theology now trumps biology. Now don't hear me wrong, Jesus deeply cares for his mother. On the cross, even in his agony, he will ensure that she's cared for as he puts under the care of the Apostle John. But there is a shift here from the Old Testament which put an emphasis on biological succession. Abraham's seed, David's seed. Well, Abraham's seed and David's seed have now found their fulfilment in Christ. He is the end of that line of biological succession, so to speak. So Christ can form a new family, not linked to biology, but to faith. He adopts people into his family, were placed inside him and made sons and daughters of God alongside him. And that means he can bring people from other families, other peoples, into his family of faith. There was always a trickle of this, wasn't there, in the Old Testament as people came in from the nations. But now the floodgates are open wide. Biology is no longer what counts. Doing the will of God is what counts. What God's will? Well, what the people around him are doing. Those two phrases are put together. The people around him and doing God's will. So it's those who are with him who are doing it. Who are believing in him. Who are following him. Who are joining him on the mission, as we'll see in a minute. God's family here in the church are synonymous. They're saying the same thing. The church of God is the family of God. And it's a family that every believer is part of. This morning we are part of a, a global network. That's true. But the Bible really speaks of it as a global network of brothers and sisters. A global family made up of millions, perhaps billions of believers in Jesus Christ. Those who are doing his will. That might sound staggering. I was reading online about a woman who has had 22 children. I thought, wow, that must be a really busy house. You know, our house is quite noisy with two. Imagine 22 children. And, and what about your brothers and sisters? I only had one sister growing up. Imagine having 21 brothers and sisters. Just keeping in touch with all of them would be pretty tricky, wouldn't it? It's crazy. But actually, do you know what? As Christians, we have millions of brothers and sisters. Wherever we go in the world, pretty much, there are some sort of black spots, but wherever we go in the world, we have, there'll be a brother or a sister who lives somewhere nearby. Imagine that, having family everywhere across the world. And it's a global picture, but it's a local picture too. We are family. I've got all my sisters with me, and brothers. No, no sister slash fans, okay? <laughs> But we're a family of believers together. It's not so much that we're friends, 
It's something deeper. Family. Friends come and go. You fall out with a friend, and they're no longer your friends. That's how it works, isn't it? You fall out with a brother or sister, and they're still your brother and sister. Family is something deeper than friendship. Blood is thicker than water, as they say. But so often we treat people in church as friends. We sort of come and go, but actually, we're family. I wonder what difference it would make if we thought about one another in church more that way. As new believer, uh, a new believers come in on a Sunday morning, we saw them not as strangers that we need to make friends with, but as long lost siblings that we just haven't been in touch with. The connection is already there. We don't need to make it, but we reflect it in how we treat one another. Or our relationship with people that we already know in church. Have we taken the time to get to know our brothers and sisters? Have we given up on some? Are we opening our homes to one another like family? Sharing life's journey with one another? You might think that's a bit abnormal for friends to sort of do that sort of level of things. But it is totally normal for family, isn't it? That's what we expect. So the church is a family. That's what it's wanting to point us towards. We're a family, a a group, together. But it's a bit more than that as well. There is one significant way, at least, in what we're more than a family. And so our final point. We're actually a family on a mission. A family on a mission. Let me read to you verses 13 to 19. And he went upon the mountain, and he called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and of authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered... Oh, there we go. They went home, and that's the next bit. Okay. The family on a mission. As we said at the beginning, human families don't exist for something, they just exist. Well, you might want to say, okay, family exists to glorify God, as all things do, but it's not no specific commission uh, from God, so to speak. The church, on the other hand, does. The church was made for a purpose. It was made to be a family on a mission, a modality and a sodality, both. We know from the passages around that this is a family context. But really, in a way here, it's presented more like a nation. More like the physical seed of Abraham, if you like. Jesus here, as he goes up the mountain, does a repeat of Exodus 19, when God calls the twelve tribes of Israel around Mount Sinai to inaugurate the nation. This is what God said to them in Exodus 19. It's on the back of your notice sheets. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, And how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Well, this is what we have here. A kingdom of priests, a new holy nation. In fact, the Apostle Peter uses those terms for the church in 1 Peter. Jesus goes to a mountain, we're not told which one, and he gathers the twelve around him. 
He calls, they come. And he names them apostles, which means sent ones. They're posted, it's not posted in the middle, that's how I remember it. They're sent ones, they're posted by Jesus. And indeed, the very same sentence shows that his intention is to send them out, same word. They're apostles. And there are two intentions behind naming these guys apostles. We see it in verses 14 and 15. He appoints them apostles that they might be with him. Before they go forth for Jesus, they need to go forth with Jesus. Part of their role as apostles will be to learn from Jesus, to spend time with him. Jesus is going to invest time and effort into these people. They're going to learn from the master what it means to follow God. They're going to be given access that we could only dream of into the life of Jesus. They're going to do the next bit. If they're going to go out, then actually they need to be with Jesus first. Secondly, he appoints them apostles that he might send them out to do what he's been doing. To preach, which he's been doing, and to cast out demons. Some versions have to heal as well. That's basically what Jesus has been doing. The point is, though, that what we have seen Jesus doing, his disciples are going to be doing. The apostles will enable Jesus to multiply what he has been doing. They'll continue his mission. They'll eventually take it to the ends of the earth. Sharing Jesus' message and showing Jesus' power. That is what they're there to do. That is their purpose in being apostles. It's for the mission. And then we're told their names and a little bit about them. Now don't worry, we're not going to look at each one of them. I think possibly the most boring sermon I've ever sat through was somebody going through all the disciples. And it was sort of, they started with Peter and we thought, okay, it's going to be interesting. And then by the time you get to like near the end, there's next to no information. Anyway, but uh, we're not going to do that. We're just going to look at some big points about the 12 of them uh, from what we see. The first thing is that there are 12 of them, echoing the 12 tribes. Indeed, often in the Gospels, they're often known not as the disciples, but as the 12. This point is picked up in Revelation 21, where they're put along the 12, alongside the 12 tribes of Israel in the very fabric of the New Jerusalem. What it's saying really here is, here is the people of God. Here is the new Israel. Old Israel, represented by the scribes and the Pharisees, has rejected Jesus. Well, here is an Israel that heeds the call of Jesus, that comes when he calls. And it's not so much that they are to replace Israel, but they are to fulfil all that Israel was supposed to be. And that's an important distinction that we need to make. If it's fulfilment, then we'll expect continuity and discontinuity. There'll be some things that are the same and some things that will be different. The new Israel, if you like, has its roots in the old Israel. It grows spiritually from it. And now they will be this kingdom of priests, Revelation 1. They will be a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, 1 Peter 2. They'll be the light of the world, as Israel was supposed to be. And at this point, 100% of the new Israel is made up of people biologically from the old one. But that is going to change radically over time, isn't it? Notice as well that actually what's brought out is the family relationships with these names. It's tricky to know exactly who's related to who, as some of the names are quite common. It could probably like being called Dave or Andy or something like that. But we know that Peter and Andrew are brothers. 
We know that James and John are brothers. Possibly Matthew and James are brothers. Both are called the son of Alphaeus at points. But that again was a common name. Yet this new family supersedes all those other family relationships. They become brothers in a new way. It's lovely, isn't it, that in the early church, in the, in the first thing, there are biological relationships. That's lovely. But they're brothers now in a new way. The family language reminds us of that. So they're a new family. And they're also given new names. Simon gets given the name The Rock. Sounds quite cool, doesn't it? James and John, the Sons of Thunder, sound more like a sort of rock band, doesn't it? You know what I mean? It'd be a great name for a rock band. It's quite common in the Bible for God to give someone a new name when he wants to use them in a special way. So Abraham to Abraham, Jacob to Israel. And here Jesus repeats that in the New Testament. So he's going to use them in a new way. That new name implies a new purpose. And then the last thing to note is the diversity of them. There are good Hebrew names from the Bible, like like Simon from Simeon, James from Jacob, Judas from Judah. And there are traditional Greek names like Philip, lover of horses, Andrew, manly. Never met Andrew, doesn't like being told, but that means manly. But it gives you a picture of the disciples, doesn't it? There are former Roman collaborators, like Matthew the tax collector, and former political revolutionaries like Simon. The word here, Canaanian, or uh, zealot in some translations, was a group of people who thought they could kick the Romans out by force. That's what they uh, believed. I bet he and Matthew had some really interesting discussions uh, in their time as disciples. So you've got fishermen, freedom fighters, fiscal experts. A bunch. It's a real mixed bunch, isn't it? But despite their diverse backgrounds, they're brought together for the mission. They're brought together as a family. It's no longer just Peter and Andrew and James and John who are brothers. All of them are now brothers. Brothers in arms on the mission. And they've been given a task to do, haven't they? We've already been hearing about that. Now, we are not apostles. So we can't just read this straight into us. Or are we? We're certainly not apostles with a capital A, like these people were. But we have been sent by Jesus to go into all the world, to make disciples, to carry on the work, to complete the mission. The Great Commission was not for the apostles alone, but for the whole church, wasn't it? Jesus was sending all of us. And we see in the book of Acts that it's normal, everyday Christians, as well as the big figures, who take the good news about Jesus to the ends of the earth. All are sent in that sense. We all carry on the work. And just like them, we don't just go forth for Jesus, but we go forth with Jesus. Part of our our position as Christians is that we're promised that Jesus will be with us by his Holy Spirit. Where at the end he said, I will be with you even to the end of the age. And we too can learn from the Master as we read his word, recorded for us by the Apostles. On top of that, Jesus has given us the Holy Spirit to empower us to do the mission. And if you think about it, that's how Jesus' mission started. Back at the beginning of Mark's Gospel, Jesus receives the Holy Spirit, and then his mission starts. We receive the Holy Spirit, and our mission starts. A mission that's so important that collaborators and conspirators put their differences aside to be involved. People who 